You are listening to Jesus Stories, a teaching series from Jubilee Church. This series takes a look at the stories or parables Jesus told and how they relate to our lives and the world around us. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. This, uh, this is another one of our Jesus Stories uh, parables. These, these parables are really, uh, just means it's a story that Jesus told, and so you see these kind of scattered throughout the Bible um, especially in the, the Gospels, really only in the Gospels, because that's when we see the account of Jesus' life and ministry. And uh, I appreciate Jesus because he doesn't uh, talk like Paul. Paul. Peter said Paul was hard to understand, that he would say things kind of so intellectually, uh, uh, at such an intellectual level and with such logic and wisdom. And you know, Paul was kind of hanging out in the heavenlies and sometimes had a hard time coming down. And uh, I've, I feel like I can relate to Peter because sometimes I'm reading the Bible and I'm like, Paul, what are you talking about, man? And Peter's like, yeah, Paul's hard to understand. We don't always, you know, get what he's saying. But, uh, but Jesus is different than that. He, he oftentimes spoke in parables, just telling stories and trying to connect to people where they were at. And uh, really, these stories aren't just kind of floating out in, a, in an abyss of nothing, but these stories are connected into real-life situations that were happening in biblical times. And so uh, in this story, this is really, if we kind of step back and look at it in context, this is in the context of Jesus having a conversation with his disciples. And uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, you don't have to turn there. Uh, If you want to, you can. But Matthew 24, 3, we see what the disciples are asking Jesus about. So Matthew 24, 3, they come to him and they say, Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? They've just been talking about the return of Jesus. They've been talking about when the Messiah is going to return and, and rule with his glorious reign. And the, and the disciples say, Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? So when and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So they ask two really big questions. They say, Jesus, when are you coming back? And what are the signs that you're coming? How are we going to know when it's getting close? And for the rest of Matthew 24, Jesus responds to his disciples and he says, uh, guys, you're not going to know when I'm coming back because that's not for you to know. Only the Father knows these things. And then he gives some signs. Hey, when, when these things are happening, you should uh, remember that, that the time is coming close. But really, these signs are just things are getting worse. And uh, so what we know from that is that day by day, as things get worse, we get closer to the return of Jesus. And yet no one knows the time or the season, the day or the hour. No one knows when he's going to return. But... He says, it, every day we're getting closer and closer and closer. And then at the end of Matthew 24, all the way through the whole of Matthew 25, Jesus tells a series of four parables. And, and these four parables, he describes how to prepare yourself for the coming of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God, Jesus tells us, is here when he came to earth. The kingdom of God came with him. And so everyone who is a follower of Jesus has the kingdom of God within them. But also the kingdom of God isn't fully here yet. But one day he'll return and the kingdom of God will be fully here. If I haven't confused you yet, I will eventually. So let me say that one more time. The kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. But the kingdom of God isn't fully here yet. And in these four parables, he's telling his disciples how to prepare themselves for his final return. Where he will come and gather all of those who belong to him and call them to himself. And that will be the day of judgment. And so in these four parables, he's saying, guys, this is how you get ready. And so the the first parable is about a master and some servants, and that the servants were unfaithful to the master. 
because they were being wicked to the master's other servants because they thought, oh, my master's never going to come back. The next parable is a parable of ten virgins. And the ten virgins are waiting for the groom to return. And as they're waiting for the groom to return, they wait and they wait and they wait and they get tired and they fall asleep. And then eventually the groom returns when they're not expecting him. And when he returns, the ten virgins wake up And interestingly enough, five have oil in their lamps and five don't have oil in their lamps. What does the oil represent? No one could say absolutely positively sure, but I'd say it's faith in Jesus. Because the the groom says to the virgins, the five who didn't have oil in their lamps, he says, I never knew you. Clearly, they didn't have a relationship with him. But the five who did have oil in their lamps, the groom says, come on in. Clearly, he had relationship with them. And so there's five who, all ten are waiting for the return of this groom, but five don't have relationship with him, and five do. And the five who do get to enter in and celebrate the wedding with him. The next parable, the parable that we're looking at today, it's a parable of master and three servants. It's a parable about faithfulness. Really, the faithfulness of the servants to the master. I'd imagine you can guess that we're the servants and God's the master. I'd like to be the master sometimes, but then I get a reality check and I don't want to be the master. But the parable we're looking at today is the parable of a master and three servants. And then the final parable is a parable of goats and sheep. And funny enough, again, Jesus is talking about us. Some of us will be goats who don't enter into the kingdom of God, and some will be sheep who do enter into the kingdom of God. And the difference between the goats and the sheep is that the goats, again, were faithful. The sheep were unfaithful. Sorry, the goats were unfaithful. The sheep, they were faithful. And so we see in these parables over and over again, Jesus says two main things about his coming and how to be ready for it. He says, have faith in the master. Have faith in the groom. Have relationship with this one who's greater than all of us. It's got to be God. How do we get ready for the the return of the kingdom of God? Well, we have faith in God himself. Secondly, which is what we'll focus on today, we act in faithfulness to what God's called us to do and how he's called us to live. What Jesus is saying is he's saying there's servants, us, who've been entrusted with the wealth of the master. In this uh, parable in particular, the way that Jesus says it, he says "It it will be like a man going on a journey. This is what the kingdom of God's like. I'd love to sit with Jesus at story time, wouldn't you? Hey, you want to know what the kingdom's like? It's like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So this master has property that he's entrusting to his servants. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Now you might read talent and you think, oh, talents, like abilities, like I want to go on American Idol because I'm talented, right? But that's not quite what he's talking about. When he says talents, this is a, this is a financial uh, term used in the day that Jesus would have told this story. It was, it was a weight of uh, silver or gold. And so uh, silver was the cheaper of the talents, so we'll lean that way. We'll say that it was probably silver talents he was talking about, although it could have been gold, uh, which was worth about 30 times the amount of silver in that day. So if it was gold, it was a much more significant amount of money. But if it was silver, one talent was equivalent to about 20 years' wages. And so say you make $40,000 uh, in this day and age, one talent or this 
servant who's been entrusted with one talent was entrusted with about $800,000 from his master. Two talents, 40 years' wages. Five talents, 100 years' wages. If we're talking gold, it's 3,000 years' wages. It's much, it's much more. But we're talking about, either way, a significant sum of money. And this master has just entrusted these talents or this wealth to these servants. And he's entrusted it to these servants so that they would make the most of it while he's gone. This master easily could have just put it away, stored it, you know, back, you could have dug a hole and stored it in the ground so that no one would steal it from you or take it from you. It would have been the safe thing to do. But this master isn't interested in doing the safe thing and just keeping what he has. This master is very interested in gaining more than what he already has. He's very interested in multiplying his talents so that he can come back to a greater wealth or greater possessions than he currently has. And so these servants are hired or entrusted with this wealth so that they can multiply or grow the wealth that this master has. And so the the servant with two talents is entrusted with two and expected to produce what two would produce. The servant with five is entrusted with five and expected to produce what five would produce. And the servant with one is trusted with one and so on and so forth. And for us today, we could translate this as what is it that God has entrusted to us, those who would be his servants, and what is it that we're doing with those things? James 1.17 really struck me when I was thinking about this. I was asking myself the question, God, what is it that you've entrusted to us? James 1.17. James writes, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what gifts have we been entrusted with by our Master? Well, James says every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Our Father in heaven is giving us every good gift at this very moment. So every good gift that we've received in life, if you're a believer in Jesus today, a good gift that we've received, all of us who have believed in Jesus, is that we've received salvation as a gift from Him. He's entrusted to us this salvation, this forgiveness of sins, this life with Him. If you're a human being and you're not dead in this room, but you're actually alive, then He's entrusted to you the breath in your lungs and the blood in your body and and the life in your spirit. If you've got any wealth whatsoever, if you have a dollar that you can go and buy a meal after this, he's entrusted that wealth to us. If you have friends, he's entrusted those friends to you. If you have spiritual giftings, giftings given by the Spirit of God, then those are an entrustment of God given to us. Practical giftings, if you know how to fix a house. I have a house that needs fixed, by the way. Just kidding. I do, but uh, I'm not using this for that. Those are gifts given by God to be faithful with, right? We tracking? Yes, okay. These are all good and perfect gifts given from our Father. It's interesting also that different people were given different amounts or different talents or different loads of wealth. So to one was given one, another two, another five. They didn't choose how much they got. They were given what they were given. And they were expected to be entrusted with what they got. So the person with one talent would have been foolish to look at the person with five talents and say, wow, master, I wish I would have gotten five, but you only gave me one. His master would have said, don't worry about that. I didn't give you five, I gave you one. Worry about what you do with your one. In the same way, 
we as followers of Jesus, for those who are even looking to be followers of Jesus this morning, you could look at your life and what God's given to you. You could look at your family, or you could look at your friends, or you could look at your financial situation, or you could look at the spiritual giftings that God has or hasn't given you, and you could say, God, why do I only have one? I wanted five, or I wanted what she had, or I wanted what he has. But God would respond back to us and say, but I only gave you one. Why are you worried about the five? I do this in my own life all the time. I compare myself to people. I'm constantly looking at other people and saying, man, I wish I had a physique like that, or I wish I had, you know, the, the freedom like that to do what they want to do, or I wish I had, you know, that one person in their life that really helps them and supports them and encourages them, or man, I just wish my personality was like that person. Like, I wish I could just, like, copy their DNA into me, and then I would be them. What I'm saying to God is, God, you've only given me one talent, or, or you've only given me two talents, but you haven't given me five talents. Or even the talents that you have given me, it's different from the ones you've given them. I want what they have. But the master is the one who chooses what each one gets. And when the master returns, he's going to be the one who asks, what did you do with what you were given? He's not going to ask the man with one talent, what did the man with five talents do? No, when he returns, he's going to say, what did you do with your one talent? The same way you might be in a church like this and you might say, wow, I'm a part of an incredible church I'm a part of a church where God's healing the sick and where God's saving people who are far from Him. And I'm a part of a church where children's ministry is amazing and I'm just enjoying this worship and the lyrics are incredible and uh, the preaching kind of is low bar, but everything else is great. And you may be a part of a church like this and think, wow, I'm a part of something amazing. Together we have a hundred talents, but then there's this, this reality that there's a talent or two talents, or five talents that God's given you. And he's going to come to you as this master is one day going to come back to these servants and ask, what did you do with what I gave you? He's not going to ask, what did you do? Sorry, he will. He's not going to ask, what did they all do that you got the benefit from? No, no, he's going to ask, what did you do that I gave to you? This is a Almost a frightening story for me, really, because it's a story that causes us to face the reality that God really has given us gifts, and that God really is going to hold us accountable for what we did with those gifts. It's, it's a story that tells us that these gifts that God's given us, whether financial or spiritual or practical or whatever it is, these gifts that He's given us, He's going to hold us to an account with, and He's going to hold us to account not for how much we produced, because if we only had one, there's no way we were ever going to make five. But he's going to hold us to account with, were we faithful with what he gave us? Or were we unfaithful with what he gave us? Now, I don't know about you, but faithfulness is something that, uh, when I think about, I really admire those who are faithful. And I really tend to look down on those who are unfaithful. But the reality is, in my own life, I've been both faithful at some times and unfaithful at other times. I've been faithful at times to my workplace being honest and full of integrity. At other times, I've been unfaithful to my workplace, being dishonest and stealing from them or clocking in a little bit early when really I'm not working yet or clocking out a little bit late when really I'm... or being dishonest to get that promotion or being dishonest to act like I'm working when I'm not. I've done all those things. I know for me, I've been unfaithful at times with my relational life and I've been faithful at times with my relational life. This thing of faithfulness really stirs me when I think about it because not only do I realize that 
I admire those who are faithful and I want to be faithful, but sometimes I struggle to be faithful. But I see here that God is a God who rewards faithfulness. And He's a God that's looking for faithfulness. He's not looking for a, a people who will do something amazing for Him that He never could have done on His own. No, He's looking for a people who will be faithful with what He's given to them. And so this parable, we're going to look a lot at leveraging our lives for the kingdom of God. We're going to look today, this entire time, at everything that God's given us. How do we leverage that for the kingdom of God? How do we leverage every single gift and every perfect gift from the Father so that we can grow His kingdom and extend His kingdom and be all about His kingdom in our lives? If you'll turn with me to Luke 10, 27. If you don't want to turn, we'll have it on the screen for you. Luke 10, 27, Jesus says, this is the way that you leverage your life for the kingdom of God. He says, the way that you leverage your life for the kingdom of God is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so when we look at these servants, and we look at these two servants who are faithful, and this one servant who was unfaithful, and we ask ourselves the question, how is it that we, as followers of Jesus today, how is it that we make ourselves faithful? How is it that we fit into the faithful camp of faithful servants who are rewarded for their faithfulness? Jesus gives us a very brief outline here, and he says, the way that you're faithful is you love the Lord your God, and you love your neighbor as yourself. But it's not this kind of cheap love that we could have for God. It's not this kind of like Taylor Swift, like, oh, I love Taylor Swift, and like, that music is so good, or like, when my wife cooks for me, and I'm like, oh, I love this brisket, you know, or, or like, when I'm sitting down watching the movie, I'm like, oh, I just love this movie. It's my favorite flick, or whatever it is. It's, a, it's kind of a cheap love. Because if I say to my wife, like, oh, I love Doritos. And I'm like, baby, I love you too. She's like, so I'm a Dorito? Like, is that how good I'm, I'm like equivalent to a Dorito? Which in my mind would be up there. But that's a little cheap, right? Like, I'm not giving my life away for a Dorito. Like, I may give up some, a couple bucks for Doritos or even like, dinner for a bag of Doritos, but I'm not giving up my life for Doritos. And this kind of love that Jesus is talking about is a powerful kind of love. This kind of love that he is talking about is a committed, devoted, all-out kind of love. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your emotional energy, all your, all your soul, all your being, everything that you have within you, your, your heart's capacity to love, love your Lord your God with all of that. He doesn't say love the Lord your God with like 70% or like 60% or like 51% of your heart, right? Because that would be not all your heart. No, he says love the Lord your God with all your heart. All the emotional and, and loving capacity that you have in your being, love the Lord your God with that. He says love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your strength. Let all the physical energy in your life go towards loving the Lord your God. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to sleep at night, the, the food that you eat that gives your body energy, all these things, all the physical strength you have, let it go towards loving the Lord your God with all your strength and with all your mind, all your mental energies, all your thoughts, all the, the things you fill your head with of knowledge. Let your head be filled with the knowledge of God that you would love him with all your mind, that you would exercise your mind and you'd exercise your body and you'd exercise your emotions and your spirit so that you would love the Lord your God. This is an intense kind of love that Jesus is talking about and this is an intense kind of faithfulness that we're looking at in this story. 
And this means like when, when you're at work, it's loving the Lord your God. And when you're at home, it's loving the Lord your God. And when you're with your friends, it's loving the Lord your God. It means when people aren't looking and you're by yourself, it's loving the Lord your God. It means when you're with people and you're around people, it's loving the Lord your God. It's, it means when people are trying to influence you for bad, you're loving the Lord your God. It means when there's decisions that come up and your family has to decide, do we go this way or do we go this way? You go the way of loving the Lord your God. It means when you think about moving house or changing job or anything in life that would come up, what do we do? We love the Lord our God. That's our ambition. That's what we're going after. That's what we're pursuing in life is that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, with all our soul, and that we'd love our neighbor as ourself. That our love would be sacrificial, that it be a giving love, that it would be a love that wasn't just kind of theoretical in the heavens, that we're always kind of like, yes, I love the Lord my God, and I read my Bible, and I pray, and I listen to Christian music, and I listen to Christian podcasts, and I read Christian books, and I do all these Christian things, but I freaking hate Christians, you know? Like, it's not that kind of a love, or this isolated love, or this love that stays away from other believers, but it's loving the Lord your God. And loving your neighbor as yourself. It's loving God and it's loving people. It's the kind of intense faithfulness that Jesus is talking about. It's the kind of intense faithfulness that he's trying to draw out of these servants. That every gift they've been given would be bent towards this thing of loving the Lord their God. And of course loving people falls right after that. Because anytime we love the Lord our God it causes us to love people whether in confrontation or comfort or, or, or whatever it is, loving the Lord our God causes us to love others in a direct way. Now you may ask yourself, but what if I don't love the Lord my God? What if I don't want to love the Lord my God? What if I try and love the Lord my God, but I struggle and I'm weak and I fail and I, I fall short? What if I try and love the Lord my God and I, I, everything in my own might causes me not to be able to do that? What do I do? What if I want to be a faithful servant, but I just keep finding myself being an unfaithful servant? Something really struck me when I was looking at this passage. When the master comes to the servant who had received one talent, the servant responded to him. And he said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, Master, you have what's yours, just one talent back. I noticed something when I was reading this, that when he responded to his master, he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Now that hard man, when I first saw that, I thought, oh, he's a strong man. This master is a man who's reaping where he doesn't sow, and he's gathering where he didn't scatter. He's, he's a savvy man. This master, this, this servant knew this master, and he thought, oh, master, you're such a hard, strong, firm man. But really, that's not what this word means. When you go back to the Greek and you look up, what does this word really translate out? It translates as, master, I knew you were a violent man. Master, I knew you were a cruel man. Master, I knew you were a man that was hard to please, difficult to work for. Master, I knew you to be a man that was cruel to those who served you. He's saying, Master, I knew you were a heavy-handed man. I knew you'd be pressing down on me. I knew you'd be angry at me if I didn't do it right. And so in my fear, I just went and hid the talent in the ground. You see, this servant didn't know what the other two servants knew. The other two servants were eagerly working for their master and eagerly serving their master because they anticipated their master's return and they anticipated their master would be joyful 
over a greater amount of talents than the talents that they were first entrusted with. But this servant thinks of his master that he's a hard, heavy-handed man who's going to punish him if he does anything wrong whatsoever. And so he hid the talent in fear. You ever done that in your life? You ever hid the gifts of God given to you out of fear? Because you think, if I give this money, I won't have enough for myself. And I can't trust God enough to provide for me. So I'll just hold on to it because I'm afraid. I'll bury it in the ground and make sure that it's safe. That at least I have what I started with and I don't lose anything. Maybe it's spiritual giftings and you're in your community group or you're on this Sunday meeting and you hear God speaking something to you or whispering something to you. You get this image in your mind and you think, I think I need to share this to encourage other people. But then fear creeps into your heart and you think, what if I'm wrong? What if this really isn't for other people? What if it's just for me? And what if, what if everyone doesn't like it and they don't like me? And what if I get rejected? What's happening? I'm fearful. So I'm hiding it away. I'm fearful, so I'm not using what God's giving me. I'm hiding it away so that no one will see it. I'm hiding it away so that, you know what, this can encourage me and it can bless me, but I don't want to put it out there that it might bless others in case it gets taken from me. It's fear. It's fear that God isn't good, that people aren't good. People generally aren't good. But our brothers in Christ, sisters, God's love towards us through them, Have you ever done that? Have you ever hid a talent in fear that your master was hard and heavy-handed? Well, the hope of the gospel today to us is that God isn't hard and heavy-handed. But he's a master who would respond like he did to these other two servants. That when they eagerly worked for him and eagerly produced for him, he came and said, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. He doesn't meet them with, what did you do with my money? He meets them with, well done. You worked so hard. You put out there what I gave you. You acted in faith. This faithfulness isn't just safely acting in regard to how you think someone would want you to act. No, it's, it's living in faith. Faithfulness. The faith is full in this action. It's an, it's an action based on faith. So the first two servants acted in faith. They were living by faith. That their master would return and he'd be pleased with them working for him. But this servant, this wicked servant, he didn't have that. First of all, he had a wrong perspective of his master. And secondly, he had an evil and wicked heart. His master responded to him. And he says, well, if you thought that about me, at least you should have invested my money with the bankers. But really, you didn't do anything at all. You're wicked and you're slothful or lazy. See, this guy, he had a wrong perspective of God. We can have a wrong perspective of God. We see him as this heavy-handed taskmaster instead of this loving God who's welcoming us in to relationship with him, and into his labor together with him. See, God wants to bear fruit through our lives. He wants to make an an abundance of fruit through our lives. Well, how does he do it? He does it by working right alongside of us. He does it by coming along and leading us and guiding us and teaching us how to work like a good master. And then, amazingly enough, the good gifts that he's given and and the strength he gave to use those good gifts, then he rewards for faithfulness to those good gifts. It's all really a gift from God. But this wicked servant doesn't see God that way. This wicked servant sees God as hard taskmaster. But also, this wicked servant in his own heart is wicked and slothful or lazy. And that's another of his great problems. He's he's lazy and he's wicked. He's wicked because he doesn't love his master, he doesn't trust his master, he doesn't follow his master's orders, and he's lazy 
He didn't want to go out and work. He didn't want to extend himself. He didn't want to be... He didn't want to take the time to get down and pray and say, God, what do I do with this money? He didn't want to take the time to think about what would Master have me do? What would Master say to me? He didn't take the time to say, oh, Master, would you have me use this? Would you have me extend this spiritual gift or this practical gift? No, he's lazy. I'll just put it in the ground and when Master comes back, I'll give him his talent. He didn't know his Master, but he also had a wicked heart. And that's... If you've got a wicked heart and you don't know your master, it's impossible to ever faithfully serve your master. Isaiah says that we all have wicked hearts. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us, we've turned to our own ways. He says it's not just the unfaithful servant who has a wicked heart. Actually, in our human nature, we all have wicked hearts. But what do you do if you have a wicked heart? How do you change a wicked heart into a faithful heart? Well, you see, this unfaithful servant, all he needed to do was ask his master for a different understanding. He needed to ask his master for a different heart. If we're talking about God here, we're talking about needing to do something that only God can do, which is change the very nature of who we are. If he's wicked in his nature, then he's not going to be able to be faithful because that's just an action that he's trying to tack on to a wicked nature. I'll say it this way. If, if I was a cat, but I wanted to be a dog and I tried to do everything I could to become a dog. So I tried to bark, and I tried to dress up like a dog, and I tried to walk like a dog, and all these things. I tried to, I won't say that. But if I was a cat and I wanted to be a dog, no matter what I did to try and be a dog, I actually couldn't become a dog, right? What needs to happen is my old cat nature needs to die, and somebody needs to have a dog, right? Bad analogy. Next analogy. I've got a tree in front of my house. Beautiful big tree. Problem with this tree, it doesn't have apples on it. I love apples. I eat like a bag of apples a week because it's just the best snack I think you can, next to a banana. But this tree doesn't have apples on it, and that's a problem for me because I love apples, and I would love to like walk outside and just grab an apple. The tree's actually close enough. I could pop the window open and just like grab it off and shut the window. But this isn't an apple tree. And if I were so inspired to go make it an apple tree... I might hang apples on it, right? And think, oh, I have my apple tree. But soon enough, those apples are going to rot and I'm not going to have an apple tree. I still have my tree, right? So trying to tack on good behavior to a heart that's wicked doesn't make it a good heart. Does that make sense? In the same way, trying to hang apples on a tree that isn't an apple tree isn't going to work. I need to take out the old tree and I need to put in an apple tree. In the same way, what Jesus says about being faithful to him and following him and really knowing him, if we're to prepare ourselves for his return, is that we need a new being. We need a new spirit. We need to become a new man. I'll let him say it the way he said it. He's talking with a religious man, and this man's talking with him about the kingdom of God here in John 3. Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, should be on the screen for you. There it is. I say to you, Unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this guy's talking about the kingdom of God. How do I enter? Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't enter. The guy responds, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's like, Jesus, I don't know how this is functionally going to work to be born a second time. Jesus says, well, that's not it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom 
of God. What does it mean to be born of water? Well, he's talking with a religious man, and in this day and age, in the religion, the Jewish religion that they're talking about, water oftentimes signified purification or cleansing rituals. And so Jesus is saying, unless you're born a clean man, unless you're born clean from your sin and clean and pure from all this unrighteousness, then really you won't be able to change. And you need to be born of the Spirit. So you need to be born clean, and you need to be born of the Spirit of God. You need to be birthed a second time. He goes on and he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. He's like, come on, dude, how do you not get this? You're meant to be a religious leader. Your flesh is what you were born with. And so you're going to act out of that. If you want to act like God wants you to act, and you want to know God, you need to be born of the spirit. Because that's, God is spirit, and you need to know him in that way. So Jesus is like, you have to be born again. And maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking, I want to be faithful to God. I want to love God with all my mind and all my heart and all my strength. But I don't even know where to start. The place to start is being born again. The place to start is being born clean and being born of God's Spirit. Well, How do you do that? I've got great news. You can't. That's not good news. I'm sorry. You can't in your own strength. I couldn't in my own strength. It's something only God can do, and he does it through faith. Just a few verses later, verse 14 and 15, same conversation. Jesus says, this is how you do it. He says, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. There was a plague going across the people of Israel. Moses lifts up the serpent and says, anyone who looks at the serpent, they'll be healed from the plague. In the same way, we've got this plague of sin, this plague of a wicked heart and a distorted view of God. Jesus says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, i.e., so must Jesus hang on the cross and be lifted up for him to be punished for our sins. And he must be buried and then really lifted up, ascended into heaven, seated at his Father's right hand. And then whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The bronze serpent was lifted up. So that anyone who had the plague and looked on it would be healed. Now Jesus has been lifted up. And anyone who looks on him will be healed. Be born again. Clean by water. Born of God's spirit so that we can know God as he really is. So how do we be faithful? How do we be like these faithful servants? How do we leverage everything we have for the kingdom of God? Well, first and foremost, we have to be born again. If we try and be faithful to Jesus and we try and reap these eternal rewards without first being born of Jesus' spirit and given the power to live the life that he's called us to live, we are toast. We have no hope of doing it. It's only by being born again. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't know if I've been born again, let me tell you, your mom knew when she gave birth to you, right? She wasn't questioning, is it done? No, she knew that baby's out because that was hard. In the same way, Not painfully, but just clearly, you know when you're born of God. If you're wondering this morning, am I born of God? You're probably not. But Jesus says you can be if you'll just look at the Son. Anyone who looks on the Son of Man, believes in Him, may have eternal life. If you're here this morning and you don't know if you've been born of God, just look to Jesus, believe in Him, and today you can be born of His Spirit completely washed clean of all your sin, made right with God. And it doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just make us new by His Spirit. He also gives us 
his spirit to walk in power. Because it was just starting a new life. It was just a faith decision once to follow Jesus. And then that's kind of it. Where does faithfulness really kick in, right? This is a life that we're living out of the gifts that God's given us. And so to be faithful means walking our entire lives faithful to the gifts that God's given us. It means taking this responsibility so seriously that we continually come back and think, Master, how am I doing with what you've given me? That we continually come back and say, Master, I want to be faithful with what you've given me. I hope that every single one of us walks out of here today saying, God, I want to be faithful to you. Whatever it is in our life that we realize, I haven't been faithful to you, God. I hope that every single one of us walks out of here saying, God, I want to be faithful to you. I don't want to walk out of here with anything in my heart that's unfaithful to you. No, I want to be faithful to you. And I want to be like these servants. I want to store up treasures for myself. I want to be like these servants when I see you, that you look on me and you say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I'll entrust you with much. Well done. Enter into your master's joy. Enter into this great joy of heaven, this great peace with God, this great eternity with him where we're enjoying him and delighting in him. I hope that every single one of us walks out of here today saying, oh God, I want to live a life of faithfulness to you. God, I I want you to keep me I want you to keep me by your strength. I want you to keep me by your grace that at the end of my days, I can look back and say, I knew the faithfulness of God and I walked in the faithfulness of God. I hope that every single one of us walks out of here today saying, oh God, that's what I want for my life. What I want for my life is a life that I didn't try and impress people and I didn't just do my own thing, but no, God, I sought you and I wanted to be faithful to you all my days. And I want to know your faithfulness all my days. I want to know it. But the only way that we can do that is if we walk by His strength. This whole thing is grace. It's not just we get in and we get some grace and then we work real hard to be faithful. No, we get in, we get loads of grace, and we walk on with loads of grace. And the way that we walk by His strength is that we walk by His Spirit. If we were born of the Spirit, why wouldn't we continue walking in the Spirit, right? I mean, it just makes no sense to be born of the Spirit and then to kind of leave the Spirit behind and just go on with the whole thing. It doesn't make any sense. No, if we're born by His Spirit, if we've been birthed by the Spirit, why wouldn't we just continue on walking in that Spirit, right? This is exactly what Paul says to the Galatians. These AV guys aren't messing up. I just didn't tell them to put this up. So it won't be on your screen. But Galatians 5, verse 16, Paul writes, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit And you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And he goes on to say, if you walk by the spirit, you'll do exactly what the spirit of God wants you to do. And you'll be faithful all your life. If you don't walk by the spirit of God and you try and do it by your flesh. Or you just walk in your natural fleshly tendencies. Your entire life will be filled with unfaithfulness and you may not even know your creator. But if you are born of the Spirit and you walk by the Spirit, all your days you can fulfill the desires of the Spirit and be faithful with everything He's given us. What we don't need is a law. What we don't need is something coming and telling us or me standing up here trying to tell us, these are all the 1,500 things we need to do. What we need is the Spirit of God alive and active in our hearts together alive and active in us 
This isn't something we do alone. It's not something we do by ourselves. We do it in loving fellowship and community where we're strengthening one another and encouraging one another and stirring one another up to love and good deeds. This is something we do together. But the thing we're trying to do is we're trying to be faithful to a faithful God because He's been ever so faithful to us. And even when we're unfaithful, He remains faithful. Never stops being faithful. It's always faithful. When I'm unfaithful, I'm so encouraged and reminded that God is faithful to me. But he doesn't leave it there. He calls us to walk in the light as he's in the light. And what does that mean? That means as he's faithful, he calls us to be faithful and to bear much fruit for him.